Hello, and welcome back to R, a helpful hand in history. Today we are boarding our caravels and setting sail across the stormy sea of Elizabethan foreign policy with a favourable wind on our backs. I hope you enjoy this episode. Elizabeth inherited the throne from her deceased half-sister in 1558. At this time, England was in a bit of a shtick. You see, Elizabeth's sister Mary had been married to the Spanish king, who didn't like the French king and wanted a bit of his land. Mary came along and proceeds to get flushed down a Calais-shaped toilet, which was lost to the French in January 1558. Elizabeth was in the exact same situation as Mary had been when she died, apart from two crucial details. She was both unmarried to the Spanish king Philip and was a Protestant. Thus, England was isolated under Elizabeth, a problem that would persist through her reign. France and Spain were bigger players on the European stage also, England having a quarter and a third of the population of France and Spain respectively. Little old England was thus, as advisor William Paget put it, a bone between two dogs. Woof. Back to the chronology, England is at war with Spain against France. All powers decided they should stop it there and signed a peace treaty on the 2nd and 3rd of April 1559 called the Treaty of Catu Cambresi. England formally lost to Calais but took home a cool £125,000 for their trouble. Yet in Scotland a larger problem loomed for Elizabeth. Mary Queen of Scots was, well, the Queen of Scots and married to a Frenchman, Francis the Dauphin. In June 1559, the King of France, Henri II, died, and thus France and Scotland were ruled under the same married couple, their issue to be the holders of the joint crown. This wouldn't do for Elizabeth, especially since Mary had a claim to her throne also. Fortunately, the situation in Scotland was less Edinburgh and more Glasgow. That is, a bit rough. Like in England, there were Protestants in Scotland, and Protestants who weren't best pleased about their new Franco-Catholic overlords. So a group of powerful Protestants called the Lords of the Congregation got together and decided they would be best without poor Mary and Francis. Quickly, Elizabeth and her advisor William Cecil realised that the Protestant revolution in Scotland provided the perfect opportunity to rid England of the pesky Franco-Scottish Old Alliance. Cautious, Elizabeth withheld from sending troops, sending money in August 1559 and her navy in December. Eventually, after the Treaty of Berwick's was signed with the Lords of Congregation, Elizabeth sent forces to aid the Protestant cause in March 1560. Elizabeth's forces were vital in absolutely no way whatsoever. Yet, France was crippled by the death of Mary of Guise in June, the loss of the French fleet in a storm, and its own Protestant problem proliferating at the perfect point for Elizabeth. France was duly forced into the Treaty of Edinburgh in July 1560. French forces left Scotland and the Lords of the Congregation set up a provisional government. The next year, Mary Queen of Scots returned to her home country and recognised the Scottish Reformation. Yet, the story of the Anglo-French conflict is a repeating one. They war as the sun rises and sets, or as a kid stares over your shoulder at your phone, or as your grandparents say something racist around the kitchen table. It's just inevitable. After raiding the Protestant Scots in 1559 and 60, Elizabeth had established herself as a guarantor of European Protestant interests. 
So when the French Huguenots were massacred at Vassy in 1562, Elizabeth was convinced into intervention by her divisors, namely Throckmorton and Dudley. Elizabeth also had a side quest in taking back a French port to cancel out the loss of Calais a few years prior. Thus, £30,000 and 6,000 troops were sent to France to aid the Huguenot cause. England occupied the northern port of Le Havre and received promises over provinces around Calais. But, after the 1562 Battle of Drew and the Peace of Ambrose in the same year, the French cause was reunified and focused on retaking Le Havre, which was done successfully in 1563. The result of the French intervention was a blow for Elizabeth. The hawkish approach had worked well on home soil, but England was outmatched on continental Europe. The Treaty of Troyes in 1564 signed away English rights and claims to Calais and the lump sum they'd received for the port just five years earlier. Meanwhile, English relations with the Spanish were deteriorating. As a Catholic leader of a Catholic nation, Philip of Spain wasn't big on Elizabeth's image as a Protestant saviour, although he did enjoy a love for beating on the French. Keeping up good relations with Spain was of high importance to English security, both in literal army fighting army in field terms and in economic terms. The Spanish, through the inheritance of Charles V, had owned the Netherlands for half a century, the Netherlands being England's largest trading partner at 75% of total foreign output. Yet, England had slowly antagonised the Spanish for some time. Paris, piracy sorry, had been allowed to proliferate in the Channel, Mary's book of rates tightened the pockets of Dutch merchants, and Protestant Elizabeth was deemed to be supporting such heresy within the Low Countries themselves. In 1563, using plague in London as an excuse, the Spanish administrator in the Netherlands, Cardinal Granville, banned English cloth for import. The embargo, however, hurt Antwerp Mark's work Antwerp markets worse than the English, and allowed Elizabeth to explore Baltic markets further, so the ban was lifted in 1565. The trading crisis was more of an indicator of a general deterioration in relations than anything else. This would continue when the Netherlands would erupt into revolt in 1566 with the iconoclastic Bleeden Storm. More cautious than in 1562, Elizabeth condemned the revolt, yet many Dutch fled to England after the Duke of Alva began quashing the rebels. However, by 1568, Elizabeth had begun to sanction direct piracy on Spanish and Spanish-aligned vessels. John Hawkins conducted raids in San Juan, and in the Channel, a Genoese treasure ship was seized and 400,000 Spanish crowns confiscated. The Spanish responded with the Duke of Alva seizing property in the Netherlands. Philip began actively supporting dissidents in England, such as the Mary Queen of Scots, who'd fled there after being persecuted in Scotland. This culminated in the Northern Uprising in 1569, Elizabeth's excommunication in 1570, amongst other events such as the Rodolfi plot of 1571. The reality was that England and Spain were on a collision course. Elizabeth couldn't allow total Spanish domination of the Netherlands, nor the destruction of the Antwerp markets that the English economy relied so heavily on at the time. Worst of all, England had to ensure that the Netherlands stayed out of the sphere of influence of France. To balance out the growing Anglo-Spanish hostilities, England needed allies. When at war with France, England aligned with Spain, so it was natural to preempt conflict with an Anglo-French detente and possible alliance. Elizabeth's competent and trusted advisor, Walsingham, was sent on embassy to Paris and floated the idea of a marriage between the unwedded Elizabeth and the Duke of Anjou to the Valois kings. Positive relations continued as Spanish hostilities grew. 
and on the 19th of April 1572, a mutual defence treaty was signed in the Treaty of Blois. Yet, the alliance was short-lived in the context of religious fractures in France. Just four months later, in August 1572, the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre soured Anglo-French relations in the crimson-tinted blood of French Huguenots. In the 1570s, English foreign policy was the most conservative of a reign. The defence of neutrality was nurtured, whilst English volunteer courts journeyed to the Netherlands, little in the way of aid or no piracy was conducted. Yet, meanwhile, Elizabeth's advisers, namely Walsingham and Dudley, urged action. Even the Dove Cecil agreed upon terms for intervention from 1576 to 1578. The Queen simply barred any action from occurring. Elizabeth may have felt her policy vindicated in the context of Philip's bankruptcy in 1575 and the subsequent mutiny of the Duke of Alba's forces the next year. Yet, defensive neutrality saw the French gain a larger stake in Dutch affairs. By the early 1580s, the Duke of Alençon became the quasi-ruler of the Netherlands. His control was short-lived, however, and when the Duke died, it left a great issue for the whole of Europe. You see, the new heir to the French throne was Henry of Navarre. He was a jovial French fellow, but was Protestant, the equivalent of voting for Labour whilst working for J.P. Morgan. French Catholics therefore sided with the, with the Spanish in order to kick out the Protestants from not just France, but the Low Countries as well, in the, 18, in the 1485-1484 Treaty of Joinville. Non-intervention had reached the end of its tether, and with the Duke of Parma's rapid occupation of the Netherlands in 40, 50, 1585, England finally entered, with Spain, entered war with Spain with the Treaty of Nonsuch in 1585. Immediately, piracy was sanctioned, and Drake wasted no time in wasting Spanish ships with his attack on Cadiz in 1587. Elizabeth sent the Earl of Leicester, her hawkish Dudley, to wage war in the Netherlands as Lord Lieutenant. However, the English attacks were minor in the context of Philip's invasion plan, the Spanish Armada. 137 Spanish ships set sail in July 1588, aiming for the Netherlands and subsequently for England. Elizabeth's kingdom was under serious peril. However, the English fleet masterfully staved off the Spanish attack, forcing the Armada away from the Netherlands and round the British Isles, where the Armada counted storms. In total, 44 Spanish ships were sunk and 20,000 Spanish were killed. Post-Armada, the landscape of the war uh, has, been seen, has been seen as changing to a naval conflict. Yet, this ignores English intervention in the Hispano-Guise conflict amongst continued forays into the Netherlands. Sure, England continued her attacks on Spanish trader ships and colonies, plundering £400,000 in the total from 1588 to 1591. Sure, Drake relentlessly pursued glory and counter-armada attempts like the failed expedition of 1589. Sure, the English scored an impressive victory in sacking Calais, uh, Cadiz in 1596. And sure, the Spanish replied with the second armada in 1596, a third in 1597, and they didn't forget the fourth in 1601. But the most pressing work was done on the continent. Henry of Navarre, now Henry IV, the French king was aided by 20,000 English troops in his ultimate victory over the Catholic Habsburg Guise alliance. Furthermore, Maurice of Nassau was aided by Francis de Ver and uh, 8,000 English in consolidating an independent Netherlands, although this was more a result of constant mutinies that plagued Spanish forces every year between 1589 and 1602. On Elizabeth's deathbed, it's hard not to perceive her foreign policy as going well. 
At the start of her reign, two states, Scotland to the north, Netherlands to the south, were under the control of her direct enemies. Over her 45-year reign, this completely changed. Scotland was a growing Protestant ally and soon to be held in union with England by James I. The Netherlands had broken free, albeit to a small extent, from the Habsburg yoke, which spelled good news for English merchant interests and security. Yet, to say Elizabeth was the great force behind these events is too far. Ultimately, she was at the whim of Spain and France. The volatility experienced by these two nations during the second half of the 16th century simply allowed England to exert more force in affairs as the dog between the two bones. It, as the bone between the two dogs. Elizabeth's foreign policy also cost the country a great deal of money, especially after 1585. Having built a reserve of £300,000 by that year, by 1603, Elizabeth had racked up a debt of over £350,000. However, it is undeniable that England began the 17th century in a, in, with a much more stable set of borders and a greater international clout than she had, joined, than she had enjoyed both in 1558, certainly since 1536, probably since 1521, and definitely more than when her grandfather had stolen the throne in 1485. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.